Yeah, I'm Alon Ben Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Sahar Mohammed Hamis, Associate Professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Maryland. Dr. Hamis is an expert on Arab and Muslim media and the former head of the Mass Communications and Information Sciences Department in Qatar University. She is a former Mellon Islamic Studies Initiative visiting professor at the University of Chicago. You can find her full bio on the page for this episode. So thank you so much, Aha, for taking the time to sit with me. Thank you, Elon. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Elon. Now it's my pleasure, believe me. Anyway, so you know, I've been doing this, uh, talking to important people, scholars like yourself, in order to explore, uh, you know, various conflict conditions, situations, especially in the Middle East. And one of the things that I have been engaging and working on, and I wrote um, scores of articles, which is the Arab Spring. And there is a lot of misunderstanding, I think, about what is the Arab Spring was all about, where does it stand today? Has it evaporated? Has it become a cruel winter? Or is it still reverberating someplace and that the Arab world will, no matter what happened, one form or another, every Arab country will experience some form of Arab, quote-unquote, Arab Spring because the youth, the Arab youth, have risen. They are now awakened and they are no longer willing to accept what used to be a generation or two ago. They want something more, they want something different. They want hope, they want opportunity, they want jobs. And so this would be, I think, something that we would like to share with our listeners, especially coming from you, having been experiencing that firsthand. And uh, we can take it from there. Maybe perhaps we start with what happened in Egypt, being that you are from Egypt, and what do you see went right or went wrong as far as the revolution in Egypt is concerned? Let me start first by the Arab Spring itself, and then we can yes. zoom in more closely on the, on the Egyptian case in particular. But when I start to talk about the Arab Spring in my Arab media course at the University of Maryland, I tell my students which term do you prefer, Arab Spring, Arab Awakening? Arab uprisings, right? And we start to talk about these different terms, right? And what the rhetorical meaning of these terms really uh, is. Because when you say, for example, uh, awakening, as much as it's a beautiful word, I just say, wait a minute, I don't want you to get the false impression that the 350 million plus Arabs were asleep, like, and then all of a sudden in 2011, they just woke up. Because that is not a correct depiction or accurate depiction no, of the, the situation. You're right. The awakening, yeah. however, as yes. I see it, uh -huh. is awakening to new realities. They, they have been living their yes. life. They've been aware of what's going on. But they have awakened to a new reality. They want more. They've been exposed, specifically because of the technological revolution, which you are very familiar with. This yes. is communication. Yes. They have now the means by which to see other, how other societies Absolutely. Live. And hence, in that sense, I call it awakening, having come to realize that there's something else better there, right. and we deserve to have the same experience. Right, but what I'm trying to get at here, it's like, it's not like it has been a complete total lack of political, uh, you know, will and participation and desire for change, because there have been attempts well before 
the eruption of the so-called Arab Spring. Arab youth, Arab you know, people have been you know, sometimes going out to the street and, and protesting and, and talking and trying to change realities on the ground. It is just that you can get 100, 200, 300 people out there in front of one of the syndicates or out there in the street, and it would be easy for the police forces to simply round them up and arrest them and put them in jail. What happened in 2011 that was different was what I call the catalyzing effect of social media and new media, providing a platform for self-expression and for expressing the will of the people and also acting as catalysts that speed up the process of mobilization on the street and acting as amplifiers mm -hmm. that can make the voices of protest louder and providing some kind of link or bridge between what is happening online and what is happening offline between the virtual world and between the, the real world. So right. I always say that this kind of missing link was the reason what, what we had before what is called the safety valve paradox. The safety valve paradox means the governments would leave a small room for uh, expression of oppositional voices or voices of dissent or rebellion or disagreement as a way for people to vent some of their anger and therefore just like the safety valve in the pot that you cook the food in it is just a way to prevent this pot from reaching the point where it actually explodes so that's what, what i call the safety valve paradox so in 2011 it's no more a safety valve now you have the full explosion of the pot or as we can use a different analogy we can say the jinni came out of the bottle or the jinni came out of the jar and now it's very hard for any government to try to put the jinni back again, which is why really answering your question about whether the Arab Spring has evaporated or whether it has gone away, I say, listen, we don't want to go to either extreme, you know, the extreme of painting a very rosy, euphoric picture like the one many people, including myself, to be very honest, back in 2011, six years ago, we were so euphoric, so optimistic, you know, it's awesome, the genie is out of the bottle, that's it, you know. And six years later, we have to revisit what went wrong, what were some of the gaps, what were some of the things we did not maybe pay attention to or, or give sufficient attention to. But we should not also go to the other undesirable extreme of being totally pessimistic and painting a very dark picture as if, oh, it's all doom and gloom and everything went wrong and there's no hope. We want to be in the middle ground of cautionary optimism. You want to be optimistic, but you want to be cautious. You want to well, assess... Let me, let me yeah. interject here something. Yes. It is not a question what we want. It is a question of reading it correctly. That is, you know, we have aspiration. We would like to see that the Egyptian revolution succeeds. We would have liked to see. But the reality is this. I mean, what we are searching for, what actually happened is not what we want to project. So we want to project optimism, we want to project pessimism. That is a personal uh, viewpoint. Uh, what I want to do is, in my, in my thinking, in my writing, I try to think in terms of what actually happened, regardless of my wishes, regardless of what I want to see happen. And this is really what, what motivates me to, to research and learn and study what actually happened. Yeah, I would have liked to see the Egyptian revolution succeed and there's full-fledged democracy in Egypt, but that's not going to happen. Not now, and it's not going to happen anytime in the near future. The way I see it, not the way the United States wanted to introduce that political system. Or the same thing you might say in Iraq or, or Syria, but we'll, we'll come to that point. But when, when you are saying we do not want to paint the picture one way or the other, it is nearly, in my view, not up to us how we paint the picture. Let's try to read it the way, in fact, the way it evolved. 
That's yeah, I mean, the perception, you know, the yeah. perception of it. Because yes. I've attended, you know, like yes. talks and lectures where people are like very optimistic or people really, really paint a very dark picture. But it's like, you know, wait, you know, just give me a moment, you know, here. Because we cannot underestimate the amount of bravery and courage and heroism that was exhibited during these days of revolution, including in groups that were traditionally marginalized and left out of the public sphere, including women, for example. Exactly. Just the fact that in a country like Yemen, which is one of the most traditional conservative countries in the Middle East, you see women flooding the streets day in, day out, not for days, not for weeks, but for months. Yes. You know, so much so that the president at that time, Ali Abdullah Saleh, you know, he uh, takes a microphone and he tries to play on the tribal conservative nature of society and say, what are these women doing out there in the street? Shame on them. They have no business being there you know, in the street and rubbing shoulders with men and protesting. This is a big shame. They should stay home. He's trying to play on the social, you know, traditional view, cultural view of women and women's place. What did the women do in this conservative traditional society? They flooded every inch of the country, not just the capital, Sana'a. And they raised banners saying, it's not shame on us to ask for our rights. It is shame on you to deny us our rights and to deny us democracy and freedom. So you're seeing, you're seeing here something very big you know, regardless of some, of course, the things that went wrong, and we'll talk about that, you know, why there have been deviations from the right path, or the journey has not been as smooth as hoped for. But we cannot, at the same time, undermine the value of this kind of heroism and this kind of exceptional courage that was demonstrated by youth and by women and by many segments of society. That's why I'm saying we, sh- we need to have this middle ground. No, of no, no, this, I, no, I optimism. agree with you. This is very important because once that's been they were able to exhibit that courage and that tenacity go out to the street and demand change that has created a precedent which it happened once it can happen again and again and again which means from my as i see it how the arab spring is evolving notwithstanding the major setbacks that already took place the fact that the youth now arab youth understand i have power I have power and I can use this power, regardless of the oppression I'm going through, regardless of the political conditions I'm going through, but we have a power. And as long as we can work together, galvanize our resources and our forces, we can make, we can achieve a change. And you know, when you also remember, I learned something very important, more than 70% of the Arab region are young people under the age of 30 or 35. And that percentage increases in some of the states, for example, the Gulf states, right? Including Yemen, you reach 90% are young people. So this is a very uh, young, vibrant population. And when you talk about youth in particular, they're the momentum, they're the impetus of society, right? They're technologically savvy, they're agents of change, they want to see change. I always ask this question, do you know what is the number one country in the world that has the highest number of tweeters, people who use Twitter? When I ask this question in class, people go like, the United States, Sweden, Germany, yeah, France. Yeah, yeah. No, the surprise is, it's Saudi Arabia. And people go like, <laughs> <laughs> and my students go like, what? I say, yes, I know you're surprised, but it's really Saudi Arabia. So when you think about that, you know, even in this conservative traditional society, you have young people, a very big population of percentage of population are young people and they're technologically savvy. You have the highest number of tweeters in the world. What does that tell us? Five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years from now. I personally think that there's a momentum for change. and There's a momentum for oh, dynamic they, oh, you know, no evolving in, in, in the region. There's no doubt. So what happened now? When I survey the, what happened since 2011, 
obviously a number of things went wrong. And my feeling is that one major element or one major entity that has contributed to some extent to the failure of the Arab Spring in various countries is the West itself, the United States in particular. What the United States attempted to do is that thinking that the youth is rising now because they want freedom. They want job, they want opportunity and all of that. But I think the order in which they felt they can tackle that is first by introducing a system, a political system, that is really not consistent with the, with the need of the hour. You know, this is something very important because when, for example, the U.S. invaded Iraq, there was this notion of we're going to bring democracy exactly, to Iraq. Yeah. So I tell my students this is an analogy that's related to cooking in the kitchen, yeah. but I think it's very valid here. You cannot buy ready-made democracy off the shelf. You must exactly. cook your own homemade recipe for democracy. Why? Because I cannot go, for example, now to Osaka in Japan and say, oh, look at that. The University of Osaka has a, a magnificent system of education. I'm going to take it and apply it in Alexandria, Egypt. Well, guess what? It's going to fail. It won't work. It won't, it work, won't work because the, the system itself, the, the different cultural, educational, political, social components are different. So if you do not take into account the very specific context of each country and each nation, each region, historically, culturally, politically, socially, you are doomed to fail. No, this is no question. And you, know, and you are absolutely right to suggest that even if you apply this method, you cannot apply the same thing to two different countries. Because each country has different culture. Even within the same the, region. The, even within the same the region. Same region like, and so that's yeah. what compounded the United States mistake by thinking we go, we can introduce democratic form of government, when in fact any kind of democracy has to be consistent with the culture, and in this case religion, of, of, of the people involved, without which this is going to be a completely alien political system to which they cannot easily adjust and in fact reject for that matter. I cannot agree more. And you know, at the very beginning of the uh, revolution uh, in Egypt in 2011, there was an interview with some of the youth who were the impetus, you know, the blood of the revolution. And the anchor man or the anchor woman at that time asked them, what do you expect from the United States? And one of the activists, his name was Wa'il Abbas, he's one of the bloggers I wrote about in my second book, Egyptian Revolution 2.0. He said, we are not wanting the United States to send us any weapons or to send us any money. We just want one thing only. Please don't support authoritarian or dictatorial regimes, period. That's all. We don't want you to support Mubarak. We want you to stop supporting him. And that's all we want. We don't want weapons or, or, or money or supplies or any kind of resources of any kind. And, and that's the whole thing. I mean, people in the West, they really ask the question with goodwill and good heart. Like, how, how can we help? You know, people in other parts of the world, how can we help, you know, in order to advance the cause of democracy? I say, just don't try to back dictatorial regimes and try to tell the governments not to back dictatorial regimes. But beyond that point, it has to be up to every country and up to the people of each country to decide which way they want to go and how they want to chart their own future. We cannot just give them a ready package and this, say, this is the ready package, go and apply it. Yeah. You're going to become the USA or you're going to become France, you're going to become uh, Britain. That's not going to work. It has to be a home-made and home-cooked recipe of democracy. This is absolutely true. And this, there's an important component, very important component. That is, you can provide uh, a form of democratic form of government consistent 
with the local culture and religion for that matter. But in and of itself, it's still not enough. That is, look what happened with the elections in Egypt itself. There was, you might say, free and fair election. Who was elected? The Muslim Brotherhood came to power. And the Egyptian people woke up in the morning and say, now we are free, and now where is the food? Where is the future? Where, is the, where are the jobs? Where are the opportunity? Which means when the West gets involved, not only they are mistaken, they were mistaken by simply introducing democratic form of government more consistent with our system in the, in the West, but also it was lacking very critical component, and that is freedom cannot exist unless it is sustained by other elements. And the other elements are other pillars to democracy. One of the most important pillars is economic development. What the United States has been doing is giving money to the Egyptian government to the tune of $2 billion a year. Much of it is going to the military. Hardly any of it goes actually to the people themselves in terms of using it for development project so that the people will benefit. In my view, in my view, and I, I think you agree with me, to be able to empower the people, they have to give them an opportunity to do something, to be able to produce something on their own, to feel they are productive. So giving them a freedom without giving them the means by which they can improve their life, it just I won't mean, work. even giving them the freedom, I would beg to, to disagree with the statement, like the, the phrasing only of it. Let's, you know, we agree in principle, but the phrasing of it, even giving the freedom, like you know, not, you cannot give the freedom. No, no, you know, of the course, have to earn it. Of course, know, no, I don't mean it. giving. You cannot yeah, give a yeah, freedom exactly. to anyone. People have to earn no, it themselves. They yeah. earn, they earn the freedom. But yeah. let us say you have this political system that yeah. allow you to go and be yeah. vote or yeah. be elected, yeah. and now you feel a free in a sense, politically right. free. Right. But right. you are not free if you don't have food. Right. Right. You're not free if you don't have health care. You're not free if you don't consent your kids to school. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, and that has been missing and continue to be missing. Yeah. Two important things here uh, alone. Number one, there is a chicken and egg question. In other words, when you say we need to fill the power vacuum with real civic engagement and civil society participation, like, for example, having strong opposition and private institutions and NGOs and you know real voices that represent the people. For that to happen, you need to have a degree of democracy and freedom. And for the degree of democracy and freedom that's really healthy to exist, you need to have civic society institutions which are active and vibrant. So which one comes first? It's a chicken and egg question. Well, the truth of the matter is you cannot have one or the other. And both, both actually, you know, to have an effective civil society and you have effective political system, be that any kind of form of democracy, however adapted it is to the local scene, you're still going to need the means by which to sustain it. And I keep emphasizing the importance of this when I talk to officials here, namely saying this, democracy is a wonderful idea, uh, and let us say it's adopted, but the people need more than just that. So you cannot develop the, for example, one of the, pillars of democracy is having democratic institutions. Well, where are these democratic institutions? As a matter of fact, Egypt, more than any other country, has many institutions as such. You can call them democratic or not, but the institutions do exist. But when the poverty is so rampant in Egypt, 
the, even those institutions that can actually function in a free and fair manner, they are unable to function. And it's not only about you know uh, uh, poverty. There, is, there are you know, compound layers of issues that can impede the process of democratic transition, or can make it less smooth and less efficient and less effective. You know, if you talk about a very high illiteracy rate, which I always tell my students, it's a big shame because you know the word paper, as you may know, comes from the word papyrus. So mm. the whole notion of writing actually started in ancient Egypt thousands of years ago. Yes, That's where yes. the concept of writing started, with yes, hieroglyphics. You know? right. So I know for us to have more than 40% illiteracy rate, I consider this a big, a big shame. So we have a high illiteracy rate, which of course translates into less political participation, especially among certain segments of society. If you're talking about rural populations or people in remote areas or women, the, the percentage is going to go even higher than that. And then at the same time, you have economic challenges, you have infrastructural challenges. And you don't have the, you know, there may be institutions in place, but how far are they really representative of, let's say, the will of the people? Like you can have a political party that says, I'm an opposition party. That's fine. But do you really have like a popular base of support? Do you really have members? Do you really have a voice? Do you really have a say in the political process? That's a different story. And that's why I want to make a very important point, which is it's easy to oust dictators from office, but it's very hard to figure what to do next. Oh, absolutely. And that's, I think, one of the main things that went wrong in the Arab Spring is that people thought, like, you know, once Mubarak is out or Zin al-Abidin bin Ali or Qaddafi is out, then, you know, things are going to automatically change for the better and suddenly we're going to have democracy. It doesn't work this way because once the dictator is out of office, then what do you do next? If you don't have a clear strategic plan in place, if you don't have a vision, if you don't have the tools to implement this vision into action, then you're going to have a power vacuum. Once you have a power vacuum, who's going to jump on it? It has to be a group that already has some kind of organizational tools and techniques and some kind of you know support, basically. And in the case of Egypt, for example, that there are two parties here or two players, the military and the Muslim Brotherhood. Why are these the two players? Because they are the ones who have structure and they're the ones who have organization. The visionaries, the people who are the young people who are really the blood of the revolution, the people who had the vision, for they had the vision and they had the goodwill and they had the dreams for change, but they did not have a clear strategic plan. When you talk to these young people, they say, we made mistakes. And one of our biggest mistakes was we did not really have a clear strategic plan or vision about what to do next. In fact, some of them were even offered places like, you know, you want to be part of the government or serve as a minister. No, 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 no. We don't want to be in that capacity. We just want to be like, you know, uh, observing what's happening or maybe in the opposition seat or maybe correct the new government. And now they feel like they made a mistake because they left the power vacuum that then became filled by the brotherhood and then later on by the military. Well, this is an important point to make. And um, what happened here, you know, by introducing quickly the democratic form of government, for example, in Egypt, without giving time for other secular parties to develop, to have their own agenda, to be able to share it with the public. So you didn't have, when I talk about institution, I'm not talking about political parties, because they didn't exist really, de facto did not exist in, in, in Egypt. You had so-called parties, but the one who were organized, were really the only real organized, other than the military, is the Muslim Brotherhood. It was very clear to us, if there is going to be an election, the Muslim Brotherhood are going to win. And why are they going to win? Because they were able over the years to provide, to provide 
help means to the young, to the poor that didn't have hardly anything. That's why I go back to, and if we are looking now for the future, as I see it, if the United States or the European community wants to support any kind of Arab countries that's going to go through, or the poor countries that need to go through political development, you've got to be able, when you talk about illiteracy in Egypt, well, how do you change that picture? How do you make sure that more kids can go to school? You're going to need funding. You're going to need money. What the United States is doing and the European community has been doing, providing some assistance, financial assistance, without demanding where are you going to spend the money, without making sure that the money is spent in areas that is going to help the, the people. And that is something that has been missing and will continue to be missing as long as we continue with a policy that it is not addressing the need of the people themselves. We say, you know, now you can go election, like I said before, but that did not work. Now, what lesson do we learn from that? That's what, you know, we, you and I want to look forward to the future. Yeah. What is the future will tell for us? I mean, the lessons are, there are numerous lessons, many lessons. The number one, I think, is the idea of filling this power vacuum that we have been talking about. And let me just make a quick comment or quick remark about the brotherhood because the paradox here, very paradoxical, very ironic point is that there have been uh, you know, decades of suppression of the brotherhood. They're not exactly. allowed to play and they're yeah. not allowed to join and they're banned. They've always been called like, quote unquote, the banned group. And despite all of this banning and suppression and oppression, they still were able, like you said, to build a popular base of support. Exactly. Because of two reasons. You mentioned one of them, which is the economic factor, which is like, you know, I'm going to provide subsidized services to the poor and medical services and, yes, and, yeah. and uh, subsidized... And schooling sometimes. Schooling yeah. items yes, and yes. all of this stuff, and schooling and education. And if you are in an economically challenged country, then definitely providing these services at a subsidized rate is going to raise your popularity. And also Egyptians by nature and many... Uh, people in the Middle East are by nature religious. We tend to be more you know, exactly. religious people, whether we are Jews, Christians, or Muslims, yes. we do have religion as part of our psyche and part of our identity. So I think these reasons together made it you know, hard for any government to crack down on them. And I think that even when you crack down on them, that is not a good thing because they're then prone to go underground. Exactly. And once these groups exactly. go underground, that's exactly. very dangerous yeah. because that's when you can breed the seeds of radicalization and extremism. You know, as long as people are in the open and conversing and talking, right? You know, sit with Sahara and hear me and I hear you. You understand where I'm coming from. But if everything is kept in the dark and people don't understand what, you know, this person thinks or what this group thinks, that's when it's really dangerous because they're going to be prone to go underground and that will breed more radicalization and more extremism. So that's an important point, I think, one there's lesson. No, there's no question. One lesson for one, the There's no question. I mean, I think it's a mistake to outlaw the Muslim Brotherhood. This is not just a small organization that you can outlaw. They represent massive numbers in Egypt specifically and elsewhere. But in Egypt, they're probably 30-40% of the population believe in the movement, in the Muslim Brotherhood. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a very significant, significant community in Egypt. To try to marginalize them or label them as a, as a terrorist organization, it's the worst mistake I think that the current government in Egypt has made. And that so this is one lesson. This is one lesson. Uh, one lesson yes. that other Arab countries need yes, to learn. That please don't, you know, suppress these right. religious movements because this is prone to really uh, plant the seeds of radicalization and the seeds of extremism. That's one important lesson. The second important lesson I think is giving more visibility and more power to the groups that we have seen 
becoming uh, you know in positions of leadership in the Arab Spring, specifically youth, young people. As we said, it's a very young and very vibrant population in the Arab world. These young people need a healthy space in order to breathe and to express their thoughts and ideas because we don't want them to be recruited by the wrong people. We don't want them to fall in the hands of some skewed evil groups that are preaching terrorism or fanaticism. And for that to happen, you need to give them space, a healthy space for self-expression and for building their own identities and building their own future. And equally, I would say about women as well, that definitely we can invest in women and women's leadership, which is another very important lesson coming out of the Arab Spring movement. A third lesson is, you know, as, as we said earlier, it's easy to oust the dictator from office, but then what do you do next? And this question of what do you do next is a very, very important question because if you don't have, as they say, you know, if you don't uh, plan, then you are planning to fail, right? If you don't have a plan, oh, if you don't have a plan yeah. in place, yeah. then you are planning to fail because it means that you know you can have non-revolutionary forces filling the the, the vacuum, whether it is military groups or whether it is a sectarian uh, uh, tribal factions fighting each other or whether it is some orthodox religious parties that may not be necessarily always invested in the democratic process in every case you're not having this vacuum filled by the right group and by the right group i mean those who really had the vision for change but did not have the means or had the the strategy to do it so now is the time for them to reflect and say okay wait a minute what went wrong and how can we put together an action plan and a strategy that can really hold well in the future and carry us well moving forward? Another lesson, of course, is a communication... But, but before we go into the next one, you see, the point here is that uh, theoretically what you're saying is absolutely important and necessary. Now, how do you translate that into a reality? That is, you can have a vision of what you want. You can also have a, a plan of action. This is what we want to do. How do you go about implementing that yeah. when you still have you know, a political system that is not allowing you to make your plans uh-huh. or to have an, a new objective? And so the, this is, what, in my view, and is another failure as a result of the first failure. The first failure is introducing a system that was not adaptable as quickly as we would have liked to because that didn't happen. And the second one was the fact that there was no follow-up. Who's going to follow through? And that's where the youth today in face in, in most of the Arab countries. What do we do tomorrow, given the reality on the ground? Now, every Arab country is different. The, the Gulf state Absolutely. versus versus yes. the Syrian versus Absolutely. Egypt versus the state, yes. the countries in, the, in North Africa. Each of them are different. And each of them are trying to deal with they are not trying to deal, but basically trying those who did not experience yet the so-called Arab Spring are doing everything they can to suppress, to suppress it. That is, not to allow the people to rise against uh-huh. So, for example, what the Saudis in the Gulf State are doing are giving money, giving the money to keep them quiet. Uh-huh. Uh, other countries, it's suppression. You have to behave yourself or else. It's still in North Africa, Morocco and elsewhere. This uh-huh. is how, how it is. So the problem here, for the youth to have a vision for the future, it is not enough to have a plan. It's not enough to have a vision. What is going to take? Again, the chicken and egg question. Yeah, yeah. What is it going to take <laughs> yeah. in order to be able to implement 
that kind of vision. Right. So the chicken and egg question yeah. we were talking yeah. about earlier yeah. in terms of what comes first, right? Yeah. Democracy and then followed by civic engagement yeah. or civic engagement followed by democracy. That is not an easy question to resolve. I think it's a very paradoxical, very important issue. But there's a third element, however. You can have, let's say you are able to get these two together and work together. But my feeling is that as long as there is no equitable distribution, and when I say equitable distribution of resources, I don't mean everybody should make the same amount of money. What I am saying is there is poverty. There is abject poverty. Egypt is one of them. I mean, I, I, was, I used to go to Egypt very often. And what I saw in some areas, it was, was appalling. And people are living, basically you can see kids, thousands of them playing in the mud, no place to go, no schooling, nothing like that. And so what I'm saying is that even with a vision, even with a perfect plan, you're going to need the resources. Of course, they have to go hand in hand. You the, the, where are, and, and the resources are coming, they're not coming, I mean, today to Egypt, today need tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions, to begin to develop some, some kind of economic system that is going to alleviate, to allay the, 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 the poverty and everything that um, emanates from that. Be that education, healthcare, and, and all of that. Undoubtedly. Yes. And so the question is here this. In the Gulf state, what these governments have been doing to stay in power, they've been actually giving money, trying to prevent the people from rising because if I can make a living and I can live in, de- in a decent way, well, I don't have any reason to complain. Yeah. But you don't. You cannot say the same thing in Egypt. Of course, that's, say, that's why we say that every country, even when we talk different. about the Arab region, we cannot just yeah. put everybody in the same basket. That's we cannot exactly. think of a one-size-fits-all transition to democratization or reform, because every country will have its own unique exactly, set exactly. of you know, question, political, historical, yeah, and exactly. social. And the question, how do you go about it? That is, I feel, and when we spoke on the phone, I think we both agreed, I feel that the Arab Spring is remains in its infancy. In its infancy, I mean to say, this is not the end of the youth uprising or let's call it awakening yes, regardless. Yes, yes. This is not the end of it. Uh-huh. It may well be almost at the beginning stages. I, I think Every so single Arab country is going to be affected by it. And the only way they can avoid that is by making like exactly what you said. Uh-huh. Look at the mistakes, what happened before, what it is really the people really want, the youth, what do we youth actually uh-huh. want? Do we have the means, and whatever means we have, how shall we use these Absolutely. means in order to be able to, A, not to repeat the same mistake, Sticks, yes. and to begin to correct what needs to be corrected mm-hmm. in terms of providing the basic necessity that young men and women we need, need. to have an opportunity, to have hope, to have a future yes. which they cannot see. When they cannot see that, they rise, they become radicals, and this is what we are experiencing today. Right. And of course, just a few more uh, lessons that I just want to quickly highlight is, you know, also I always tell my students that, you know, as much as social media were very important to give an impetus, you know, that to give the first initia, you know, inertia or momentum for these movements, they were not enough to keep the ball rolling. To keep the ball rolling, you need all the stuff you just mentioned now about infrastructural, economic, political, social factors. All of these factors together have to be taken into account. Otherwise, you cannot keep the ball rolling. You can start the initial momentum, but to keep it rolling, you need all of these other things in place. So I always say, you know, 
great social media are wonderful in terms of mobilization and networking and giving the initial you know inertia but beyond that they're not magical tools and they're not going to bring about change and transformation all by themselves they can only complement and supplement the process of social and political transformation if you have all of the other criteria and all the other requirements in place. Okay. Another thing I also want to highlight is we have always had a very narrow elitist focus and urban focus. Like we talk about, oh, the Arab Spring, Tahrir Square. I always tell my students, like, there was also many people in Alexandria, in Tanta, in Upper Egypt, in places outside of Tripoli, outside of Damascus, outside of all of these capitals. We should not be blinded about all of these populations who are in rural areas, in remote areas, less privileged maybe, but still very important. And we should pay attention to them in our own scholarship and writing and academia and give them more attention because it's not all about the urban areas. It's not all about the capitals. It's not all about the two or three percent of the elites in these societies only. We need to widen our focus and widen our perspective. Another lesson also for the future is pay attention to the activists in the diaspora. Very important because we have so many activists and protesters who are not able to express their views inside their own countries. They're afraid of intimidation or you know, repression by the regime. Many of these, where do they go? They exercise their activism in the diaspora. That includes women's groups as well. Oh, so absolutely. we need to yeah. hear the voices of these people and to respect them and respect their experiences and also learn from their own insight and learn from their own perspectives. I call these voices in the diaspora. Yeah. And I think we need to really listen very carefully to these voices from the diaspora and learn from their own experiences and their own lessons. Yeah. Well, so what you say, what you say, when you say we, I want to define we, who yeah. is we? <laughs> and this is really the problem we have in there now. Obviously you're referring to who? I Civil had, society. Yeah, I had I academics in mind and I was saying we to be honest with you. What I was thinking is like academics and scholars who are writing that, about these issues. Well that's not gonna be enough. But you also you need people who are able to read it. When you talk about illiteracy, 30, 40, 50 percent, you can write all you want and that's gonna go anywhere. So the we is important, that is are the current various uh, Arab government in their Arab states, are they in a position? Have they come to the, have they been awakened? The, that is the main question to me. Have they been awakened to the fact that they can control the population up to a point? Another five years, another 10 years, and 15 years, but somewhere, sometime, is going to explode. Absolutely. It's going to Absolutely. explode. Absolutely. Yeah, the safety now, valve is not going to hold for a very long it time. It won't hold. Now and the, the pot question, will explode. Exactly. Yeah. So, what question is what are the means, what are the methods, what it is that they need to do today in order to prevent it, regardless of the political system that exists in any of these countries. You have kings and emirs in some, you have dictators in another, you have semi-elected government like in Tunisia, you have all kind of a mixture of all type of political system, but all, all of them share one thing in common. The young men and women are not happy. They are despairing, they want an outlet, they want a future. Mm -hmm. And each country is gonna have to, when you say we, what it is the we that we need to do? Are they able to do it? Will they be wanting to do it? Yeah. And let me just say one thing about this, because when you look at these king, uh, the, like the specifically countries in North Africa, Morocco is one and others, from our, our experience, what they really want to do is continue to express the people, because we, the moment you give them more freedom, more opportunity, that's how they think. Then they're going to want more. As the old saying goes, you give them a finger, they want to grab your hands. So take Syria, for example. I know Bashar Assad. I met him. I, knew to, I used to talk to him. 
to his Walid Mu'allim, a good friend of mine going back many, many years. And I know from him, when he came to power, he said, I want to undertake some reforms. I don't want to follow exactly my father, what my father used to do. And he was open to reform. And when he was talking to his, the Ba'ath party and other, they were telling him, no, 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 if you do that, if you give them a finger, they're going to grab your hand. You cannot absolutely do that. And so he, he basically followed what his father passed on to him. If the people rise against you, you have to chop them. You have to suppress them. You have to get whatever it takes. You cannot allow any uprising against you or else you're going to lose power. Mm -hmm. So what, what is happening here, even when you have reformers in any of these government, the, 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 the environment has not been created as yet. That's again the chicken and we yeah. come back again yeah, to the yeah. chicken and egg yeah, question because yeah. you need the environment in order to induce change. Okay. And to induce change, you need to have a helpful environment. Okay. So we keep coming back. I think that, but, you know, if we had yeah. a solution for this issue alone, we'd probably be billionaires by now. Well, we know, <laughs> no, but the point is we cannot settle for the fact that there is, uh, you know, there is a vicious cycle here. You know, one is linked to the other, and if you solve one, you cannot solve the other. Which means, you know, in such kind of conflict, we still have to come up with the solution. What is the solution? And one of the, I mean, in my view, I, I go back to, to, in my view, economic development is central, central to begin a process that is going to allow for any polit any political development to take place. I agree with you. I think it's necessary, but yeah. I don't think it's sufficient. I think it's oh, important. Oh, no, not sufficient, not, yeah. not in and of itself. I think, you, know yeah. what, you know what I think really, uh, Elon, it, it is not a question, of course, that we can solve in this interview or in any other interview for that matter. I think that these visionaries, the young people who had the vision, the young people who had this desire for change to sit together and revisit again the exact same questions we were talking about in this interview. Right? What went wrong and what could be done about it? What are the lessons to be learned for the future? And how could we do things differently? And I think that in my own opinion, I agree with you that there's going to be a lot of room for these young people and these young voices to try to revisit their quote-unquote leadership. Because whenever people say the Arab Spring was leaderless revolution, I say, wait a minute, I have an issue with this term. I think that it was semi-leaderless, and I think there was some form of leadership, but it was not a top-down imposed leadership by a handful of people telling people what to do. It was rather a very diffused, grassroots, uh, bottom-up approach, which has its pros and cons. The pros, of course, are these are young people, they have the vision, they have the desire for change, it is more participatory, that's awesome. The bad side now, as we're learning six years later, is that we have this challenge of the power vacuum that we've been talking about before. We have the infantile civil society that's not developed sufficiently. We have the vacuum that needs to be filled. And as we said before, But not having enough strategic vision and strategic planning among these young people meant they had the goodwill, they had the dreams, they had the vision, but they did not have the tools or the means okay, to implement an alternative the, reality. That's the point. They don't have the tools and they have the means. Yes. They could have the vision. And the they strategic have plan. The courage, they have yeah. the can but the question here is how do you implement it? They have to figure this out. I don't well, think it's well, up to well, me or you or no, anybody no, else. No, no, no. They have to figure out. <laughs> I, well, it's not that we have to yeah. figure it out. Uh -huh. To figure out such a plan of action. Uh -huh. I or you, anyone yes. from the outside, you're uh -huh. not an outsider, uh -huh. can go and say to them, do A, B, C, and D. Right. First of all, this is going to have to come from them. Exactly. But coming from, from them, them in yes. and of itself, uh -huh. are, they cannot do it on their own because they need all kind of resources. That is, unless there is a 
collaboration, in my view, between government, between various institutions and the public, so to realize that this is going is leading to dead end at best or to another bloodshed. Which means as long as the current government do not come to this realization and decide let's work with the youth. The whole phenomena of radicalization today, whether you call it Islamic radicalization or otherwise, stems from the same source, from the same roots. The total desp despairing and unhappy youth throughout the Arab world. And I tell the European community who are suffering from radical Islam, so to speak, from their perspective, and I say to them, you know, you can have all the mechanism to combat radicalization, but you are not dealing with the root causes. And the root causes is not necessarily in Europe. Of course, there is lack of integration in Europe. It's, it's uh, and it's not story. in Islam either. It's, it's, in not the, Islam. it's in the lack of yeah. the proper atmosphere of development and civil society participation and in, economic resources. In, in the Arab countries. Absolutely. I mean, and you, and this is where the West need to be helpful. And this is where we all need to really pay attention. We all need to pay attention. When I say we here, I mean academics, scholars, writers, thinkers, intellectuals, and also, hopefully, officials and people in power. Unless they realize these blind spots and really start to pay attention to these areas, I don't think that there's going to be much hope in terms of real positive change. There has to be attention paid to all of these blind spots and the new vision of trying to revisit all of these important areas we talked about. But at the end of the day, let's go back again to a very important point. It has to be a homemade recipe of exactly. change it's that the homemade. youth themselves, yeah. the, the, the young people themselves have to figure out for themselves which way they want to go and how they're going to go about implementing it. Nobody can just give them a ready-made recipe yeah, and say, the, go yeah. ahead, buy it off the shelf. This is what you need no, to no, do. No, no, this doesn't work. work. But again, I'm going to emphasize the, impo yeah. the point is that even though if they have the vision, they have the, the planning, they have all of that, that in and of itself will not be enough unless there's a collaborative effort Absolutely. by the government itself. And it's, it served the government interest if to do just that. Here's, here's a very important footnote. Yeah. Yeah. If the government itself or governments come to a realization that this is exactly what they need to do, then, of course, it would be ideal. But as long as they see it as a tug of war, well, as like, you know, me well, or you, it's yeah. me or you, it's not us, it's not we, it's exactly, not like we're exactly. working together exactly. to achieve a goal. It's like, you know, it's a zero-sum game. Who is going to win, me or you? Let's wrestle together. So unless they change this kind of mindset, if they change the mindset and they start to see exactly what you're saying, that we need to provide the economic development and employment and all of these opportunities and a platform for expression so that we can fight or combat any form of radicalization or extremism and also avoid you know, the, the explosion that can go in many different directions, including, God forbid, full-blown civil wars, as we saw in the tragic example of Syria, the worst humanitarian crisis in, mo in modern times, period. So to avoid this from happening, you need to have a change of mind. Now, whether the, the governments are going to come to this kind of realization, that is left to be seen. But I definitely, certainly pray and hope that this would be the case, because I don't want to see blood a bloodbath i don't want to see civil right. wars that's right i don't want to see right. people innocent people being killed i don't want to see refugees i don't want to see rape i don't want to see wars we don't want these kinds of ugly you know things that are you know surrounding Which, us everywhere you know, yeah this is bringing us back where we started and i think we will we can finish with that and that is where the arab spring is what lessons can be learned from the arab spring and this is exactly what you just just said the arab spring if anything it teach these government that they need to wake up themselves 
and look at the population, look at the youth, which constitutes 70, 80 percent yes. under the age of 25, yes. and say to themselves, it's only a question of time. What have we learned from the Arab Spring? How can we avoid another revulsion, another uh, uh, revolution, another bloodbath? And the only way to do it is to begin that kind of dialogue Absolutely. And, and begin a process where the young men and women throughout the Arab world become part of the system, part of the process, Absolutely. in order to change the dynamic there of the, no, the social dynamic. There is no question about it. Yeah. I mean, it's dialogue, 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 yeah, I think yeah. is the way to go. And I think the more parties are open to this idea, open their eyes and hearts and minds to this idea of the importance of engaging in this kind of dialogue, we cannot see much positive change. I very much hope and pray that there's going to be more acceptance of this notion of openness and transparency, engaging in dialogue, in development, in true participation across the board. That would be the best way moving forward. Exactly. Unfortunately, uh, it may not come entirely from within. I mean, still, uh, those countries who are depend to a great some extent on the West, the West too is ought to be nudging or be pushing these leaders, tell them you want to avoid a repeat of civil war in Syria, you want to avoid the repeat of what happened in Egypt and elsewhere, you better start to do something about it. But it all has to come from within and has to be home, home-owned, homegrown. Yeah, let me just make one last comment uh, alone is the term Islamic radicalization. You know, the, this, this term has been used a lot in, in the media. And President Barack Obama refused to use the I term know, Islamic radicalization. Yeah. And the Pope actually said something very powerful. He said, don't use the term Islamic radicalization, because if you do, then talk to me about Christian radicalization. Oh, no, or no, Catholic. I, I, I if I say that, I didn't it. mean yeah. it that I know, way. I know, I know. But no, I mean, a lot of yeah. people, when they hear yes, the term, you know. just, you know, for your listeners, a lot of people, when they hear the term, they automatically associate Islam as a religion with the idea of radicalization or extremism. I, I know that. So I always I like to take the opportunity just to clarify this point, because radicalization or extremism is a mindset. It's a frame of mind. And so it's can, absolutely and not it's limited not to, to Muslim. Or Absolutely. to any religion. <laughs> you know, if somebody says, you know, the Jewish extremists, I say, wait a minute, you know, Judaism is not about extremism. If some group of Jews happen to take the religion to a fanatical or extremist level, the religion itself exactly. cannot be blamed. Exactly. So right. we cannot say that's Jewish extremism or Christian extremism or Islamic radicalization and extremism because that would mean that it's the religion itself which is at fault. And it's not. No, no, absolutely. And yeah. you're talking about the three monolithic religion, all of them preach yeah. peace, preach amity, yes. preach friendship. That can be the topic neighbor, for another neighborhood. Uh, podcast. And so <laughs> there's no question. Yes. There are those uh, in a hypocrites within all communities who use religion as a tool by which to subjugate, by which Exactly, a, a tool to reach yeah. power That's and a tool right. to implement yeah. their own ISIS path. is one example, Al-Qaeda is another example. You can think of and, many examples. But let's, I want to leave it on a positive note, I yes. hope, and that is when I see young men and women uh, yearning for better days, and I feel strongly that the day will come, as long as they remain committed to what their feelings, and they remain and exactly what you just suggested before, they need to know their place, mm -hmm. and they need to know that they have rights, exactly, and they need to know how to pursue and realize these rights. Right. And the governments who are wise, any government in the Arab world that is wise enough to realize mm -hmm. that they cannot sustain the current status quo is not sustainable. They wake up also 
and begin this kind of process. So it seems to me that there are lessons for everybody to learn, right? Exactly. There are lessons right. for the governments to learn that you should they should learn exactly what you just said now that suppression and repression does not cause stability, does not lead to stability. Because many fact, of the these regimes, exactly, many of the regimes say, you know, it's either me or it's anarchy, right? Yeah, As Mubarak, yeah. you know, said for a long time, if I go, it's going to become anarchy, it's going to become chaos. They need to revisit this notion that it's not repression and suppression never leads to stability. It just leads to putting some kind of pressure on society. People are going to go underground. They're going to become radicalized. And society itself is going to suffer a big time. And all of a sudden, you can have an explosion. And you don't even know which direction it's going to take you to. It's going to become a disaster. So that's the lesson for the government. The lesson for young people is it's not enough to have the vision, but you also have to have the tools and the means to implement this vision and take it to the right direction. So you must have strategic planning and you must have coordination of different resources and coalition building to be able to implement your good vision and put it into good actions, right? And the lesson for intellectuals and academics and scholars is we have to revisit many of these blind spots that we have been talking about today in terms of people in the diaspora, in terms of marginalized groups, in terms of the activism of youth and women, in terms of understanding the potential of all of these growing dynamic populations in this evolving region, in terms of revisiting what you just mentioned about the social and economic development and how it ties into all of these issues. These are also lessons for us as intellectuals, academics, and scholars to rethink about all of these notions. The cyber activists, they have to rethink about their tools and their means, right? Avoid things like clicktivism or slacktivism, the idea that, you know, by sharing a link, now you became an activist, congratulations. Well, it takes much more than that, (laughs) obviously, right? So you need to think about your tools also. Are they sufficient? Maybe they're necessary, but they're not sufficient. So there are so many lessons for everybody. I hope everybody tries to really understand Uh, these lessons. We we hope so, and we hope there will be some kind of, you know, within each of these entities you mentioned, you need leadership. And that is unfortunately still lacking. But we have a role to play, people like yourself and myself, we have to talk more and more about it. The time has come, you know, to have, because we, we can all envision things, but we're going to have to be able to try to, to find, to, to chart, right. suggest some charts, yeah. some, some road. This is the path to take. And we hope that over time, things will change without another revolution or another, another civil war that has exacted so much pain. Exactly. And, and that's agony. why we need dialogue, yeah. right? I mean, dialogue. me and you, we've been part that's of right. the Middle East dialogue yeah. For, yeah. for many years yeah. now. Yeah. And the whole idea of dialogue is to try to bring people together and try to have this kind of discussion and conversation because out of the inoculation of people's ideas, that's how you can get great ideas and get a much better path for peace and for development, which we hope is going to be the case. Absolutely. And I fully, fully agree with you. And thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. No, my pleasure is mine. I'm glad that we were able to swing it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.